Welcome to the Voices in Japan podcast with Ben and Burke. On this episode, we are joined by Brian from Tokyo. He has a long history with Japan, going back to when he was living here as a missionary for his church, then as a college student in Fukui on the former Mombasho Scholarship, also as a visiting law student at Temple University and as a consultant with Deloitte. And now he has done remarkably well with his headhunting business in Tokyo for the past 15 years. He was even selected as Japan's number one headhunting executive by Asia Money Magazine. We cover a number of topics with Brian, including raising kids in Japan, the Japanese school system, working as an adjunct professor at the Temple University Law School, and many details about his work placing Japanese and foreigners as consultants, finance professionals, and lawyers in Tokyo. Talking with Brian was a great opportunity to get a very interesting perspective on living and working in Tokyo from somebody who has been there long term, so we hope you find the conversation interesting too. 1, 2, 3. What was I thinking? We were actually out shopping today, and、uh, have you guys noticed this that they've started to like, charge for the plastic bags at convenience stores and everything? Yes. Yeah. Is, was it three yen now? I think like Lawson was like three yen. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's like set across the board or if it depends on each place you go to. But、uh, yeah, but they don't really have it quite figured out. Like the convenience stores, they kind of used to use like the bagging system to like get people out really quickly, especially during like a run, lunch rush. rush.、Okay. But like now they don't really know like if you've got your own bag, is it okay to take your bag? And they try to line things up. And then, like, when we were shopping today, like, we were just buying like, toys for our daughter. We didn't really know like,、uh, if we wanted to use a bag or not. So we've just been saying we don't need a bag and we're just kind of carrying like, our products home, basically. Where, where was that? Was that like a, like a proper shop, as in like, Gap or something like that? Yeah, it was like at the、uh, shopping malls at,、uh, at uh, Sapporo Factory. It was just like a toy store. We bought like, a couple big puzzles for my daughter and some other things. And like, they're like, Do you want a bag? You know, they're going to charge us. And so we said no. And so we we're just kind of like carrying these big puzzles like in the <laughs> stroller for the rest of the day or something. So, yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that they, it's at the stores around my house, they, it depends on the size of the bag, right? So it's like three yen for a small one, five yen for a big one. It is a little irritating, obviously, when they ask. But the,、um, I guess if the, the idea is to reduce plastic waste, I'm all for it. Yeah. You know, if it's just somehow to, Re、uh, jigger the, the way that they make money. I'd rather they, they just give me the bag, you know? It's, it's, like, it's like the airlines, right? You know? It, 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 I preferred when they just charged me and then let me take carry ons and bags. Now, you know, everything is a la carte and it drives me nuts. So,、hmm. But if it's for plastics, you know, for the, for the safety and, and uh, uh, the you know, cleanliness of the planet, then、I'm, I guess I'm all for it.、So. Yeah, yeah, my wife actually got a little bit annoyed with the whole system because she,、uh, she's, I guess she's not really used to it yet because it only started, what, like in July, beginning of July. Yeah.、Um, so, like every time we go out, you know, she, because we have our own echo bag that we always take everywhere, or we've got a few now, and she just forgets to take it all the time. So, it's almost like, what's the <laughs> point of having an echo bag? And we just 
get bring home all these plastic bags. Like I'm, I'm pretty good at taking a plastic bag with me every time I go now. So, but uh, yeah, my wife was not not quite used to it yet. I assume your wives are Japanese. Yeah, yeah. So Japanese wives tend to like to collect plastic bags. At least mine does, and <laughs> most of the ones I so. Every time I go, my wife's like, yeah, get plastic bags, you know, and I'm like, but I don't need it. She's like, we need them. We need them at home. And she has an entire like closet full of plastic <laughs> yeah. bags that are wrapped in the Japanese. You know how they take a plastic bag and they fold it and they wrap it and put it in another big bag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ours is under the sink. Yeah. A pile of bags. <laughs> yeah, Brian, no, you're, you're in, you're in Tokyo, right, Brian? Yes. Yes. Is it, is it like absolutely cooking down there? Cause uh, in Sapporo, it's really hot today. Oh, no, it's not that hot here. Um, it's just been raining. You guys don't have the same situation as we do, right? With the, you, you don't have the rainy season, as I understand it, up in Sapporo, right? We didn't. It's kind of like we're getting like uh, weeks of forecasts of rain, but it's never actually coming. So, it's, I mean, we're not supposed to have the rainy season. We used to never have it. but Right. That's, it's not a thing north of, like, you know, Akita, right? Like... But so it's rain. It rains here like every single day, and so consequently, it's super humid. But it's not that hot, right? So it hasn't. I don't know. It's probably twenty-seven degrees today. Man, that maybe that's hot, hot by <laughs> maybe that's hot by Sapporo standards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that's about where we are today too. So it was a really hot day. And then speaking of the rain, man, they're having that horrible situation unfold down in Kyushu. Heavy rains, uh, flooding, and Kumamoto and stuff. That's all over the news right now. Right. Hopefully. They seem to have that about it every every year nowadays, now, recently, right? Yeah, yeah. I always remember hearing stuff like that on the news, always down down there every every year about this time, kind of June, June, July. And I guess it's because it's the rainy season, isn't it? Yeah, and then the typhoon season is, is you know, August, September, October, right? So they get slammed. And it's it's just gotten progressively worse, I think, uh, mm. as as long as I've been here, you know, and which is twenty, I don't even know, twenty three, twenty four years. Yeah, that's crazy. You uh, you came over here first working uh, when you were working through Deloitte, did you say? Well, originally I came over in ninety two. Uh, so from ninety two to ninety four, I came over as a missionary for my church. Right. Uh, then I went back uh, to university. Um, I was at a school called uh, Brigham Young University in Utah. And I got a scholarship from the Japanese government to come study for a year uh, while an undergrad. So I, I came back. I, I, I got married. Uh, and then six months later, we were back in, we were in Japan. I should say my wife's Japanese. But uh, went to Fukui University for a year. And then uh, spent uh, a year there, and uh, most of the next year after graduating there, uh, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then I went to law school in the U.S. at Washington University in St. Louis for three years. And during that period, I came back for a, a semester at Temple University's law program here, graduated, then came back with Deloitte so that was about, I think that was 2001 when I um, last came to Japan. And so I've been here since 2001, but altogether, I guess it's 23, 24 years. So like 
by the time you got here with Deloitte, I mean, your experience with Japan, because probably through the, that mission and then was the scholarship, the Mumbu Kagakusho or is it something? Exactly. Similar? Yeah. Mombusho. At the time it was called the Mombusho. I think it's now called the Mumbu Kagakusho uh, scholarship. Like right that's now. a really sweet setup, isn't it? They're like paying you to study for a year or something. Yeah, it was great. I mean, and, and when you say study, you, you do have to remember that you're at a Japanese university. So that Nobody studies anything except uh, except whatever clubs you decide to join. So um, I did study. I studied more than than, than my the other students, but um, not nearly as much as a U.S. university. But I spent most of my time in the rock and roll, rock and roll kenkyushitsu, which was the <laughs> the rock and roll research club. Um, and so it was basically just a band room and with a probably twenty to thirty. Uh, club members and with lots of martial amps and guitars and we just played rock and roll all day and that was my japanese university experience is it not very hard at university in japan like to to graduate no it's it's actually it's tough to get in right that's the whole that's the whole situation is it's really tough to get in especially to i mean obviously the top universities are like uh you know, uh, Tokyo University, the, the top universities are the nationalized, the national universities. So Tokyo University is one of those, Kyoto University, uh, Sapporo University, or Hokkaido, is it, I can't remember which it is. Yeah, Hokkaido. Hokkaido, Hokkaido yeah. University, right? Uh, Fukui is one, of, is, so each ken, right, each prefecture has its own um, pre, uh, university that's run on the national system. And it's actually the old imperial system, as I understand it. But um, so those are the hard ones to get into, the hardest ones to get into. But once you're in, you don't have to do anything, basically. <laughs> it's mostly about networking and making the, you know, the, the ties that will bind you for the rest of your career and having connections to other people from those top universities so that when you do go into a company, you'll have that, uh, that network of, of uh as they say, OB, right? The uh, old boys. Yeah. And um, yeah, not a lot of work going on. I mean, in fact, I would say any, at any given class that you attend, you're talking about roughly one third of the, the students would be there. And then about 90% of those will just put their face flat on the desk <laughs> and go to sleep. <laughs> so, I mean, as a foreign student, and, it, and I was attending, I was the only native English speaker in the entire university. And so, I mean, obviously all the classes were in Japanese, but I was just stunned, you know, coming from the American university system to find that these Japanese, uh, these Japanese students were so... Um, I mean, just a, a complete lack of motivation to study. Um, and that's actually sort of sort of informed my opinions about certain industries within Japan and how, why they don't function very well, particularly like the IT industries and, and whatnot, because you have students that spent four years doing nothing and then... Mm -hmm become I like for instance IT professionals and they just really haven't done anything. Whereas almost every other country in the world you have, you know, people that are IT people are like dyed in the wool IT folks that, you know, that are that are coders and, and whatnot. And Japan just doesn't have that. So I think if you were to remove all foreigners from this country in, you know, just just 
tomorrow, if there was no foreigners left, the entire IT infrastructure of this of this country would would crash to the ground. <laughs> there's nobody that could do it, right? If, if it wasn't for the the Indians, Chinese, Americans, British, you know, what have you. So is that uh, is that because like uh, those places, especially like America, like people are doing internships and stuff, and they're not doing internships in Japan or. There's some of that, I think, but it, it literally, well, there's, two, there's, there's probably a couple reasons that, that being one of them. But the other thing is that when you graduate Japanese university and let's say you go to, you know, Tokyo university, right? So you're at, you're a top notch candidate and you join, say, I don't know, pick a pick, you know, X, Y, and Z to, to, uh, to uh, Toyota. Let's say you join Toyota they literally tell you what you're going to be, right? So there's not a lot of choice. So you might start as agio, or you might be chosen to become an IT person or an HR person. And, and there's, there's also, of course, the idea that you're, you're going to get rotated through different sections. So I guess when it comes to, I guess my point being is when it comes to specialized skills, hardcore tech skills, there's, there's just not a lot of those people because the people that really are the hardcore techies and um, at least in my experience, and I suspect you guys would um, agree, these are people that like code and, you know, have four computers on their desk at any given time. Right. Mm. Right, Like people that do it like in their free time, it's like their hobby. Exactly. And that's just not a thing in Japan. I mean, obviously there's, there's always going to be a few, but you know, if, if you go to, you know, Hokkaido University, and you get put into uh, one of the big companies up there, you may become an IT guy. And so, you know, Japanese are committed employees, and so they'll, they'll do their best to learn. But they're really, that's not who they are in their heart of hearts, right? And that's a, and that's a big problem, I think, um, in terms of, it's the, it's the education system that from, from the university uh, particularly. But, you know, the education system all the way, at my kids, I think, you know, my kids go to Japanese um, elementary school, and then I switch them to international school. And you know, I I do that for a reason. But where are your kids now? Are they what? How old are they now? So I've got four kids. My oldest is um, he's twenty two, and he he's actually currently serving a mission for my church. Right. Um, my next one is a college student at BYU. Um, my third boy is at St. Mary's International School in Tokyo. And I should say that the older two also went to St. Mary's International School from the sixth grade through high school. Mm. And then my uh, daughter is, uh, she's t- she just turned 13 and she just uh, started uh, ASIJ, which is the American school in Japan. So uh, this last year, so she's got one year under her belt of inter- of. I guess that one's not international school. It's American school, but um, yeah. So that's, and, and so I've sort of, you know, I've, I've been involved with the, you know, the education of my kids, obviously. Um, but I've been pretty interested in how the education system works um, in Japan. And, and so my wife and I made the, the choice um, that we would, allow them to go to Japanese elementary school, which I think is fantastic. Why is that? Oh, I just, I think Japanese elementary schools are really, really, I think it's a great education. And I think that 
the way the teachers interact with the kids is, um, is, is, is good for them in the sense that it, so the way that Japanese raise their kids also is, is quite different than at least the way Americans do, right? Americans are quite strict on their children when they're young. And then as they get older, they sort of release the pressure and hopefully you've done a good job in the, in the early stages. Uh, although America, you know, right now may be pro- disproving that um, point, but um, Japanese on the other hand are very uh, relaxed with, with little kids, especially. And so that, that sort of is also the way that, that uh, Japanese elementary schools are. I mean, it, there's not a whole lot of pressure put on the kids, but then once they hit junior high school or, or middle school, that's when pressure starts to, to be put on them. And that's where society starts to mold these minds into becoming Japanese people, right? So, you know, in my, in my estimation, Japanese people are made in the middle school and the high school experience, and that's how you make a Japanese person. But the elementary school experience is, is quite, you know, it's quite a lot of free thinking, quite a lot of creativity. And then that has to get society slowly cranks down on them um, and, and turns them into Japanese people. What about the uh, international schools? What is the focus to make it as similar to a school experience as you would have overseas, or is it unique to be in an international school? Or um, It depends, I think, on the school. I think that, for instance, the American school in Japan, one of their... Um, one of the school's uh, purposes is to give kids a kind of a distinctly American experience. And so, you know, so they have football games and cheerleaders and, you know, proms and that sort of stuff. Uh, I think that St. Mary's uh, where my other, my boys went or still go, you know, it's a Catholic school. And so there's some of that, but I think that it's more the international school experience, meaning that it's it's more influenced by uh, the European way of uh, doing things. The so, for instance, the American school uses the AP, the uh, Advanced Placement Curriculum, mm. uh, or I should say, they use American curriculum, but they do AP testing and everything's focused on that sort of American way of doing things, whereas. The uh, St. Mary's and a lot of the other international schools use the the IB program as the basis for their curriculum. So uh, the IB is the International Baccalaureate, and that is what gets you know that's it's it's more European. So if you take the IB uh, curriculum and you graduate with an IB diploma and you score a certain number on the IB test you have, you know, you're sort of guaranteed into certain schools in Europe and Australia and Switzerland mm-hmm. and, and those kind of places. Yeah. How about um, your your kids? Do they plan to stay going to, do they want to go to universities in, in Tokyo or Japan or do they want to study abroad like in America or Europe or something? Yeah, so uh, that... Uh, Given that I pay for it, there's not a whole lot of control on their part, I think. <laughs> That's, and that sounds terrible. But the, the, the deal has always been with my kids. And the, I made this deal with them when they, when they go into um, international school is that 
and maybe maybe they're so young that they're you know one could argue that they're under duress when they make this 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 agreement with me but <laughs> aside from that the the deal is that you in my fam in 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 our family because i'm spending all this money on on international school and whatnot um that if you can get yourself into an ivy league school so harvard yale any of the ivy league schools or stanford I will pay for that. If you cannot, you will go to BYU, <laughs> which is where I went. Because BYU is probably the single cheapest university in America. I mean, it's, I can't remember what the tuition is, but it, it's like for an entire year's tuition, I think it's $4,000 or something like that, right? And is that and the, across the board, international students, everyone, or what is it? That is, uh, let's see here. Members, uh, members of the church, because BYU is affiliated with with um, uh, my church. It's, I think it's, I, 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 you'd have to look on the website, but I think it's like four thousand dollars for the year for tuition. And yeah. if you're not a member of the church, because the tithes, the tithes of the church, you know, are subsidized. It's sort of similar to a state school, where if you're in state, you get a discount. It's uh, a little bit more, but it's it's still probably the best deal in college education in America. Yeah, sounds very inexpensive. Yeah. And so my point being is that if you, to the kids, it's like, look, I'm spending a lot of money on international school. It's, you know, it's close to $30,000 per kid per year to send them to St. Mary's or, or ASIJ. So um, a lot of the money that I might've spent on your college is now gone. <laughs> Therefore, um, you know, you're going to go to BYU unless somehow you can get yourself into Harvard and then we'll figure out how to do that because obviously <laughs> that's, there's a probably a, 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 a significantly higher return on investment on Harvard than there is on, you know, other great schools. There's a lot of great schools. I'm, I can't, Burke, did you go to University of Michigan? Yeah, I went to Michigan. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic school, right? Great yeah. school. But it's still quite expensive, right? Even though it's a state school, and especially if you're an out-of-stater. Yeah, if you're in state, it's not too bad. But if you're out of state, it's uh, and then if you're international, it's like uh, yeah, I don't know, twenty thousand dollars or something per year. Everything sixteen thousand, maybe just for tuition. I can't remember, but yeah, I'd be surprised if it was that cheap. Actually, <laughs> I think it's yeah. Those are those are probably uh, when I was in school numbers. It's probably completely yeah. different. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I'm looking at it right now. So right now I just looked, pulled it up. It's $49,350 for tuition at for Michigan, a, right? For a year, is that? Or? That's a year. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. that's tuition. So, uh, and my point being to my kids is that if you get into Harvard, we'll figure it out. Otherwise, I don't see a big difference. Go to BYU, get good grades, and then go, go, go get an MBA or a... Are, are any of your kids on track to getting into one of those Ivy League schools that you just mentioned? Well, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, my second kid, he's at BYU, but he he had he had really good grades and he did a few things that I thought would set him apart. But he actually ended up not even he applied to Stanford. Um, he did not apply to any other ones just because. I think he wanted to go to BYU. Um, and, um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, he did some things like, for instance, he was a, my kids are in the boy Scouts, you know, they do the boy Scouts and he became an Eagle Scout as have my other, my other son did as well. But 
my second son actually got all of the merit badges within the Boy Scouts of America. That's crazy. Which is, <laughs> were you a Boy Scout ever? Either? Yeah, I was. Uh, went to the very end. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get Eagle Scout, but yeah, Life Scout or whatever. Yeah. Well, okay. So yeah, so he got the Eagle Scout, and, and as did I, but but he got every merit badge, 147 merit badges or something, which is more people have been to outer space than have gotten all of the merit badges <laughs> in the Boy Scouts. In fact, there was a, the, the um, Japan Times did an entire write-up, a full-page write-up of, of the accomplishment, actually. So if you, if you look his name up, Austin Koslow on, uh, on, in the, in Japan times, you'll see they, they devoted an entire page to it. To, to wow. him. To him, to him for that accomplishment. Yeah, because it's such, it's a, only about one or only a couple hundred kids in the 200, in the, I'm sorry, in the 100 and something year history of the Boy Scouts of America, only two, two or 300 kids have ever done this. So roughly, you know, two to three per year over 100 years and actually, it was probably more prevalent earlier on when there was a lot less merit badges. So, and he didn't get into Stanford. No, he didn't. But he, you know what? He, he I probably shouldn't say this on a podcast, but <laughs> he he waited to the last minute to do his to do his uh, his his application. So, you know, because mm. he like those credentials sound like someone that would get into a place like that. You know, so like you said, it's so difficult to to do what he did. I think. That that alone would probably warrant an entry for for that school. I think I don't know. Would, well, would you guys it's, agree? it's 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 a it's a yeah. There's a lot of factors. I think I think that was one of them. But you know, he turned it in the last day <laughs> that it was due, and I don't think he really wanted to go anyways. Which <laughs> right. Saves me a lot of money, so I, I'm not complaining. You actually, uh, you you teach at a university, right? You teach law. Well, you yes, teach I do. Law. So I teach at Temple University uh, in the law program. Um, in addition to your company, right? So teaching at the university is teaching at the university your main. Uh, no, work? no, or, I'm okay. I'm just an ad, I'm an adjunct um, professor, so it's just a it's more of a just a side gig kind of a hobby. Sort and of. how how long has that been going on? I think I've been teaching there 16 or 17 years now. Wow. Um, I teach a class called East West negotiations. Um, and I, I, I've taught it with other professors in the past. I've taught it by myself right now. Um, I've been, uh, I've been privileged to teach it with a, a good friend of mine who is uh, the CEO of bank of New York here. Who's also a lawyer, and uh, yeah, it's 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 a great experience because you know you you're constantly well. For one, I get to stay f- uh, connected to younger people, <laughs> right? Mm. Uh, and, and you know, lawyers, uh, and you're constantly getting pushed and challenged by them as you're you know lecturing to lecturing at them, I guess. But um, you know, the law school experience, I think, is a is a very uh, tough uh educational experience but it's really good for your mind and how are your students compared to regular university students like you said in japan only a third of them turn up to to classes what are your students like at temple university yeah it's well quite different because um in fact 
most of the students come over as foreign exchange, uh, I don't know if you call it foreign exchange, but as um, visiting students from the U.S. So, so Temple University runs a program, uh, and I believe it's the only program in Japan where you can get a U.S. law degree. But to be fair, my class is... You know, 90% of the students are Americans, or or they're not necessarily Americans, but students at American uh, law schools, uh, probably half of whom are attending Temple University, and the other half are from different law schools like University of Michigan or, you know, where I went, uh, Washington University or UCLA or whatever, and they come for a semester of law in Japan. So they are very different than your average Japanese university student. So these, these are highly motivated uh, I, I, kids, but they're not really kids, right? I mean, they're, some of them are 30-year-old, some of them are 40 years old. And we also have Japanese lawyers that, um, can, that, that, that uh, participate in the program and are working towards a master's in law uh, under the U.S. system, so that, that that they can then go and become um, licensed in the U.S. In East, was it East-West negotiation? Are, are you teaching? I mean, as a curriculum to help them learn about, uh, you know, doing law or practicing in Japan, or is it preparing them for international work? Or most of the most of the um, the classes definitely are um, have an international aspect to them. Um, so they might take an international transaction class or an international taxation class. Um, mine is a negotiation class, so it's not necessarily black letter law type of, of law school course, but, um, yeah. And, and they also have to take, I think they have to take a Japanese law class so that they get at least some fundamental understanding of how the Japanese legal system functions vis-a-vis the U.S. legal system. They're quite different. I mean, Japan draws most of its legal tradition from European law and and the idea of a civil code versus uh, what in the U.S. we would call common law, which which derives from the English common law. And so quite quite different approaches to how you you look at, at the law and and how it operates but this is uh this is your side job as you were saying you your main i guess work is uh well placing professionals into either financial consulting or legal positions within japan is that is that right or that's right yeah so kind of to give you some background i you know i came out of law school but i decided i didn't want to be a practicing lawyer and i joined deloitte consulting uh here in tokyo and i i was working for Deloitte in the financial services group. And so most of my clients at the time were um, insurance companies, banks, asset management firms, um, as well as a few other industries. But um, I did that for five years. And then um, this was about 2005, six. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I started 2001 and around 2005 or six, the market was really hot at the time. And so I was getting a lot of calls from headhunters, 
they would call me up and say, Hey, we've got a job at McKinsey for you. We'd like to talk to you, or we've got a job at, you know, XYZ corporation or whatever it happened to be. So I started to go and meet some of these headhunters. Um, and, um, I re I, I realized very quickly that these guys don't know hardly anything about what they're doing. <laughs> I mean, like quite honestly, most of the headhunters, at least at the time, and that's probably still the case, were there was a lot of, you know, ex-English teachers or a lot of Japanese uh, women who went to the U.S. for uh, undergrad degrees and came back and couldn't get jobs in Japanese corporations because they didn't have the, the Japanese university on their resume. And, you know, which is fine because, but the problem is they just don't know what they're doing, right? They've never worked in an industry. Hmm. And so they're, you know, they're coming to me as a consultant and saying, Hey, we've got this job at, uh, wherever it happens to be, you know, say McKinsey and we think you're perfect for it. Well, you know, I'd, I'd ask why, why do you think that? And they just had, they, they didn't know because somebody <laughs> gave them a piece of paper, said consultant on it and you're a consultant. So boy, you'd be perfect for it. Right. And I thought to myself, well, geez, that's, that's, you know, I could probably do this a whole lot better than these guys could. And then I did the math, right? So, the, you know, figuring out how much they made. And, and that's a quick calculation because basically every time you place someone, you make a third of their salary, mm. right? Yeah. So wow. if you place three people, say if you place four people, now you're making more than the average of those four people. And mm. so I thought to myself, well, geez, I bet I, uh, I, bet I could do this on the side. So I had my wife make a corporation um, and she was the face of it and I would do the work. So I'd come home at night and I'd place my friends into jobs and pretty soon, just to give you some, just to give you some uh, context, I'd made in, in two months time, I made 22 million yen Wow, you know, doing this. Wow. So over, over $200,000 something. Yeah, and I thought to myself, well, that's about twice my annual salary at Deloitte at the time. So if I quit, I can make, I can, I can go two years and I can give this a try. And if it doesn't work out, I'm, I haven't really lost anything. Hmm. And so I, I, um, I did it and, and I, I quit Deloitte and I went and the first year I placed like 40 people. Right. Wow. wow. <laughs> and it's not always that good. I mean, it's market dependent, right? But I placed a lot of people and I, and it's, I've been doing this now for 15 years and, and I, you know, every year is a little bit different, but it's never been, it's never been bad. Are you still doing it by yourself or do you have partners now or people working for you? Yeah. So I never, the only partner I ever took on was a buddy of mine. Um, Great guy. It turned out he wasn't the greatest headhunter. And that was partially because of the market at the time. And, and maybe, you know, his personality was not necessarily a fit for it or whatnot. I mean, fantastic guy. And we're still great friends. But um, no, I never had any interest in, in bringing anyone else. Because I actually think that's one of the problems with a lot of these headhunting firms is that they, it's very scalable. But hmm. when you do it, when the, when the market turns, now you've got 20 people, 30 people that you have to keep paying and nothing's coming in. And, and so I just never felt like that risk was uh, worth it. I know friends that have done it and have, you know, 
made a lot of money and cashed out. But uh, personally, I actually just, I like headhunting. I, it's, I love it. You know, I, I meet great people. I place them into better jobs than they have. The companies that I place them in are most of the, my clients are my friends. And, um, and they, uh, and, and then they pay me a lot of money. So it's it could be better, right? Uh, everybody's happy at the end. Uh, but is that type of industry, like a city like Tokyo, it seems like you'd have, you know, a lot of people coming in for temporary assignments or there'd be a lot of chance for people to be moving around more. It would seem maybe, uh, than other large cities or is it basically similar to, I mean, is there something unique about being in Tokyo that makes that especially, uh, especially good thing to be doing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I don't think that this model works almost anywhere else. Um, I, I, technically my company is actually registered in, in, um, Kyoto because that's where we originally set it up. Mm -hmm. And you know, each year we have to report to the um, the ministry, I guess, that oversees because it's a regulated industry, right? So there's licensing that you have to get. There's a headhunting license, and you have to report, you know, every single person that you uh, placed and how much they made and 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 what kind of you know job they were, so that they can keep government statistics and they can make sure that there aren't unscrupulous headhunters, you know, doing bad things and and that sort of thing. But we're technically in Kyoto and I know that the Kyoto, uh, the, I can't remember if it's the Homo Kyoku or the, the, uh, my wife takes care of most of this stuff, but whatever it is, you know, they, they constantly come to us and say, how do you guys do this? None of the other headhunters can seem to make any money here. And yet you guys are doing so well. And can you come give a, a, a lecture or something at the, at the offices of the, the ministry. And, and I obviously I usually say, no, no, I'm, I can't, I'm too busy, but um, it really has to do with the fact that you're in Kyoto, you know, in Kyoto, the, the, and you guys probably experience this up in, up in Sapporo, but it's a very different corporate culture. I mean, people join companies for life, right? Mm, yeah. That's what I was going to ask about. Yeah. yeah. And that's not the case in Tokyo. I mean, and, and again, I deal with a very, specific slice of of industry i deal with financial services and consultants and lawyers and the you know a lot of these people are bilingual most financial people that work in banks whether they're japanese banks and when i say banks i don't mean you know like the bank where you go keep your 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 money as a, as a deposit i mean like investment banks and and um these kind of places most of these people are bilingual and they're they're they have the mobility and the you know the uh, ability to move between companies, and that happens all the time. Is that is that most of the people then that are successful? Then being bilingual is pretty crucial for that. Or do you have a lot of people that are you place that are successful that don't have really great Japanese language skills? Well, it depends. So, so I place ja you know for Japanese people, <clears throat> I think being bilingual is certainly at least in the industries that I'm working in is certainly uh, it's a given, you know, if you're going to work in a, in, in uh, one of the big banks or asset management firms, pretty much everyone's bilingual from the Japanese side. Right now, the foreigners, and, and again, I'll be honest with you, it's a lot easier for me to place a Japanese person than it is to place a foreigner for, you know, a, a zillion reasons that I'm sure you guys are well acquainted with, but um mm -hmm. 
for foreigners, you know, it all, it all depends kind of on the exact position, but yeah, you've got to speak Japanese. You've got to be able to read, write at, you know, level one ability to really not have an issue uh, in, in moving in, in terms of like, so for instance, if you send me your resume, so say Burke Porter sends me his resume. One of the first things I'm going to look at is like, or at least when I talk to you is I'm just going to say, how, you know, can you read, write and speak? Because if you can't, you are, you know, 95% of jobs have just disappeared that I could possibly place you in. Is writing still that crucial? Because even with computers and everything? Or? Well, I mean, not so much. I mean, obviously, as a foreigner, you're given, like, nobody's going to say, hey, I want, you know, if, if it's between you and Tanaka-san, they're not going to say, hey, hey, Burke, I want you to write this report. I mean, obviously, the, <laughs> the Japanese guy is going to do it. Though you may be well, you know, able to do it. You, you also, it probably is, is, is a bad use of your time, right? Because yeah. there's... Yeah. There's so many, I mean, I, could I, could I write a Japanese contract? Yeah. It would just take me 10 times as long as a Japanese lawyer to do it. So why would anybody ever want me to do it? So you're right. You don't, but you know, you got to be able to read, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And, and it, you know, it depends on the industry. I mean, for consultants, for instance, if you're working for Deloitte or EY or PwC, um, the issue there is that they don't know what the next project is. And so the next project may have you reviewing documentation. And if you can't do that, you become a resource that is um, hard to utilize. And it's not like they're going to stop paying you your salary. They can still got to pay you your salary. So it's much easier to always use, to, to utilize somebody who is fully bilingual. Can I ask you, like, uh, the people that you're placing, what percentage are Japanese? Are they the majority or... Uh, I'd say right now it's probably 50, 50, you know, Uh, I'd, I'd love to place more Japanese. Um, I just, because, you know, because of who I am and who my networks are, I get a lot of foreigners coming to me. I mean, and I'll give, I'll give you a funny example of that. Um, I don't remember what it was, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, there was, there's this, there's this magazine called Asia money and they, it's, it's a finance focused, um, a finance focused uh, uh, periodical for, for bankers. And they, they do a, uh, a survey of, you know, best equity shop, best fixed income desks, you know, whatever. And every year they do a best headhunters um, survey or whatever. They, 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 they send out surveys to the banks and they ask who are the best headhunters in your industry. And lo and behold, whatever it was eight or nine years ago, I actually won it. Right. So I was the number one headhunter in all of Japan, which was like, you know, the first thing they did, I was, I remember specifically I was driving and I get a phone call from Hong Kong and I was like, oh, I wonder who this is. And as I'm driving and they say, hey, Mr. Kozler, you, you know, this is uh, Asia Money Magazine. I'm sure you heard you're the number one headhunter in Asia this or in Japan this year. And I was like, oh, really? That's that's nice. And the first thing they said was, would you like, you know, now would you like to buy an ad in the magazine? Right. And I said, well, <laughs> boy, I don't, I don't see why you've just given me the best ad I could ever, <laughs> I could ever have, but let me think about it. I'll call you back. And then what proceeded was I got a zillion emails from everywhere, you know, guys in India that were like, Mr. Kozlo, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, 
you know, my name is Rajesh and I live in Bangalore and I'm sure I could learn Japanese in two or three months. Can you, uh, <laughs> can you get me a job in Tokyo? You know? And it, so it was like, Oh, it was a great, it was this blessing and this curse at the same time because all of a sudden, and I, and I feel like if somebody's going to take the time to send me a note, I'm going to, re- I'm going to respond to it. Right. So I had hundreds and hundreds of foreigners coming to me that had no business even thinking about getting a job in, in Tokyo, wanting to get a job in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And so I have to, and this happened, you know, just last week I got, I mean, I've, I've got an email, I'm s- sitting on an email of somebody that wrote to me and the person doesn't speak Japanese and I, I'm going to respond to it and I'm going to say, look, I'd love to help you, but you know, this is going to be tough because you don't speak, you know, you're in Japan, but you're saying you don't read or write and you have you know very limited speaking and so that's going to make it very hard there are, no that's not to say there's not jobs because there are there are jobs that only require english but you know i don't tend to deal with them and mm. so do you uh do you place um people in like all all kinds of jobs or is it like a set kind of field that you're you're interested in i'm happy to place people in any job but i I mostly place people in jobs that I understand. So that's the financial services industries. Uh, that's consulting and that's law. And so, you know, outside of those, I don't have a lot of reach, but periodically somebody will, you know, call me up and they'll say, Hey, we're a, you know, we're a, we're a, a Norwegian tire company and we need somebody to be our, Country manager. country manager you know do you know anybody that lives in the northern climes of, of <laughs> japan where it snows a lot and uh and speaks reads and writes japanese and and would want to be the country manager for a, a tire company and I, of course i know nobody but i except one guy i'll pick up the phone i'll say hey burke you want to <laughs> yeah. work for a tire company and he'll either say yes or no <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that he's telling the story because it's actually a true story that happened. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, it was a that was a really good opportunity because Nokian's <laughs> obviously a huge brand, and uh, I think actually they ended up going with a uh, partnering up with um, a few of the big uh, tire dealerships and service uh, companies in Japan. I think like Yellow Hat was one. Oh, actually, I think yeah. it's Ab- Abe Shokai is I think a big uh, tire dealership in Japan. That's who they ended up partnering with. But I need to get that guy on the podcast. Actually, that guy has, holds, holds like the world record for breaking ice blocks with his head or something. That's right. That's right. The, the guy that interviewed me for that position. <laughs> that <laughs> is he, right. Yeah. He, and he actually just contacted me a few months ago. Cause he said he was going to be in Hokkaido for business and he wanted to meet up, but I just couldn't get, uh, meet up with them again but yeah. yeah so yeah brian does uh look for any opportunities for any people actually yeah but is so that Burke, so Burke, you actually um applied for that job and you almost got it it sounds yeah, like yeah they treated me really well they uh flew me down to tokyo for the interview and everything all thanks to brian i went out and, and like i said i became really good uh, friends with the uh, recruiter i think he's kind of like the country manager for china or something i can't remember remember where he's from originally but uh but yeah, that was all fun and interesting. He was um, Norwegian, wasn't he? Norwegian or something? He might have been. I can't remember. But yeah, he was from that area, and uh, and yeah, we've kind of stayed in touch in touch since. It wasn't necessarily. It was a great opportunity, but I don't think it was necessarily what I was aiming to be doing. But I definitely appreciated the opportunity <laughs> for sure. Is that is that kind of though what's kept you in Japan for such a long time, all these years? Is the job, or is it? 
you know, the affinity to Tokyo or is there something that, uh, you know, you got married and so decided this was the best place to raise your kids or something? Because we talked to a lot of people from Tokyo and, it, uh-huh. and it's obviously most of them are pretty transient and they're only there for a few years or five years at the most. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting for us to hear about like somebody who's been there for so long, maybe what kept you there. Yeah, well, I mean, I think opportunity has kept me here because um, I'm a firm believer that if, you know, if you do speak, you know, you got to have the tools, right? So you got to be able to speak Japanese and, and, and communicate and read and write and whatnot. But if you have those, there's probably no more, um, there, there's no better place to sort of fast track a career than, than here. Now that might, you know, I mean, maybe if you speak Mongolian, Mongol, you know, obviously Mongol, there's probably not a huge amount of, of uh, non-Mongolian, Mongolian speakers. But if you went to Ulaanbaatar, you would probably be able to find some really interesting things that because you also have that, uh, the English or, or whatever else you, you bring to it, uh, that would allow you to move up the ladder very quickly. And I, and I think that's still it's probably less so nowadays, but I can't tell you how many guys I know that came probably 10 years prior to me to, to Japan. Um, it's kind of a generation of, of folks uh, that, that came over here and they all be, you know, they ended up being CEOs of big corporations and, and it's not necessarily, I mean, these are smart guys, but it's not necessarily because they were the smartest guys. It's because they, you know, they took the, they went where, you know, there was opportunity. I mean, it's kind of, it was kind of like the wild west, right? If you just showed up and you knew how to shoot a six shooter, you could make a name for yourself kind of thing. Right. And that's, that's the way a lot of these people that I know, I mean, I probably came 10 years too late um, Mm -hmm. in terms of, uh, you you know, that trajectory. Um, And I, I still, I, but I still think there's opportunities. So if you're good at what you do, if you're a good lawyer, if you're a good consultant, if you're a good finance guy, if you're a good car guy, whatever it happens to be, and you're willing to um, really, you know, get the language down um, and understand what's going on, you can move up pretty dang quickly, you know, through the, through the, uh, through the corporate ladder. I mean, if that's what you want to do, that's to me, that's, sounds amazing and nightmarish at the same time but this is um, in tokyo this is in tokyo i think yeah i think and and there is always the danger of becoming too native right like going too native meaning that you start to get treated as if you are a local and i i see that more probably outside of tokyo although i haven't lived outside of tokyo in a long time but and maybe you guys experience this more but you know, you are, um, you, you have the skill set. you're able to do what they need. And so you eat and, and so you, you, you kind of run one of two paths. One is, is, well, you're the hired help that does the English stuff, right? And you're right. never really going to be part of our thing here, mm-hmm. or we've decided to accept you as a hundred percent Japanese. And then you now have the problem of being having to you know live within that system too right yeah that's kind of the system i was stuck in for many many years yeah and so it's 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 a what's the word uh two two uh two-edged double-edged sword right 
Um, I think Tokyo allows, there's enough foreigners around that you, in sort of positions high up in the companies, because there's a lot of foreign companies headquarters here, right? So that you can be the foreigner that speaks Japanese that can help smooth the gears uh, between, you know, offshore or the, the foreign uh, CEO or COO or whatever here mm. and still be seen as you're not, you know, you're neither here nor there, which can be a good thing, right? You're not full of Japanese, but you get the Japanese so you can, you can um, uh, interpret what's going on. Right. I think that's one of the, uh, the the big the, the big um, pluses for foreigners that understand Japan is you don't want to become like the, exactly the, J- the Japanese and become stumbling blocks to the foreign headquarters guys, but you need to be able to explain. Look, here's what's happening. This is why this is happening. So, and here's the best way to approach this to get past this roadblock or or whatnot. Right. It's kind of always feathering the way to make sure you don't get completely accepted by as a Japanese seishin or Japanese employee and stuff. Yeah. Um, but, but are you, I mean, are you really deep into that kind of corporate community within Tokyo? Cause it kind of seems like you've separated and able to separate yourself a bit from it. I mean, you're not all caught up in the hustle and bustle and, of Tokyo living and stuff. Are you or? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, because I run my own company, I'm not inside of a company, but I'm constantly placing people within companies. So I'm definitely, I know what's going on at all my clients, right? And I know who the major players are. And, and as a, you know, as a, hopefully as a good headhunter, I'm advising people, you know, this is, this is the cart to which you want, or this is the horse to which you need to attach your cart, mm. right? So that I'm advising people. So, so I have to stay in touch with what's happening on the corporate side for sure. Yeah, but you're not getting sucked into like long uh, executive meetings or you're not having to go out and uh, do set die at night running around no. is- izakayas and stuff. And No, I, and that's why that's, yeah, that was something I wanted to stay away from and that's why I left. I mean, at Deloitte I was, right? Yeah. Um, but not, not, not so much recently. Um, again, though, as a foreigner, you do have sort of that, I don't know what you'd call it, that, uh, you know, other gaijin power right where you can just say i'm yeah i'm not going tonight and you know the rest of the japanese might feel that they have to go to something you can always sort of put your foot down and say no um but it's hard i mean it's you know but no you're right i don't i don't i don't have to do that Hmm. but all my all my candidates and and my clients do it so i have you know i have to know what's going on Yeah, man, we've uh, kind of covered a lot of good stuff today, and we're kind of uh, coming up about to that time. But there's actually a lot more I wanted to talk about and wanted to cover. So maybe uh, we'll be able to get you to come on again uh, later and uh, cover some of that other stuff as well, man. Yeah, absolutely. I probably jumped around all over the place. So um... No, no, it was all because, uh, again, like we haven't talked to too many people who've been in uh, Tokyo long term before. So mm. it's definitely uh, a good opportunity for us to learn more about what it's like. I wanted to ask you about some of the uh, other interesting experiences you've had during the, your time there, like the 311 earthquake and everything. But I think maybe mm. we can get to that one on the next one. But just want to say thank you very much for spending time to talk to us today, man. No, absolutely. It's just good to talk to you and good to meet. Uh, is it Ben or Benjamin? Ben. Ben. Yeah, Brian, I, I, it was great to, to have you on. I was, everything you were saying was just really, really fascinating for me about headhunting especially. 
um but yeah like definitely a lot more things that we can talk about so hopefully um you come and join us again in the future yeah absolutely yeah very very i have i'm uh i'm starting to work through some of the uh, your past uh uh podcasts so um, nice nice thanks for listening thanks all for uh, having me on guys all right man appreciate it see you guys cheers Bye. cheers